The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this episode, we're discussing the theory that COVID originated from a lab in Wuhan and why the theory is now being taken more seriously. Also on the podcast, are English tourists welcome in Scotland? And is being rude the secret to success? First up, did COVID escape from a lab? What was dismissed as a conspiracy theory in the early days of the pandemic is now getting a serious hearing, as a number of leading scientists call for a fully independent inquiry. Science journalist Matt Ridley, whose upcoming book looks at this exact question, writes this week's Spectator cover article on the evidence stacking up in favour of the lab leak theory. He joins me now, together with Dr Dennis Carroll, chair of the Global Virion Project, which tries to predict future pandemics. Matt, you write in your piece that a year ago you dismissed the lab leak theory. You've since changed your mind on this. Can you explain why? Yes, I've changed my mind only to the extent that I think it's plausible, not that I think it's definitely happened. I think it needs to be investigated properly. And there's basically five reasons why. In a year and a half, very little evidence has emerged to support the natural Uh, transfer hypothesis. More than 80,000 animals have been tested in China on farms, in markets, etc. None of them had this virus. And in the case of SARS, it was weeks before the connection with the food chain and the civet cats was, was found. The other reason is that the closest virus that we have found was one that was collected by scientists from a mine shaft in southern China, in Yunnan, and taken back to Wuhan. And that's a journey of 1,885 kilometres by road. So it's not as if it's just next door. And that's the only connection we know between that area and uh, Wuhan. The third reason is that we know that the laboratory was doing relevant research, was working on these kinds of viruses, did have a large number of them. Then there's the fact that we know SARS leaked from a lab at least four times in Singapore, Taiwan and Beijing. So uh, that's the previous SARS virus. And in three of those cases, they didn't even know how it happened. There was no accident. So it's easy for an infectious virus to spread. And this virus was being worked on in a uh, biosecurity level two laboratory, which is relatively low security. And we know it's a very infectious virus. And then the final reason is that the scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology have been extraordinarily obstructive to people trying to find out details. Uh, they, they disguised, they changed the name of the virus that they got from the mineshaft, they disguised the connection with uh, the deaths of miners there, and they didn't reveal the existence of eight other similar viruses uh, until November last year, and it, that was four months after it had already been figured out, by a group of people on the internet called the Drastic Group, who've actually found out a lot of things that have turned out to be true. So I think we do need to investigate the possibility that this jumped into human beings in a laboratory rather than in a more natural setting. 
you also say in your piece that there's a distinction between what you're saying and other lab theories, uh, which caused some confusion among journalists last year when writing about this. Um, could you just explain for our listeners the, the distinction? Yeah, I think I think two things got very confused uh, early last year. Uh, one was the idea that, that that this is a synthesized, engineered bioweapon virus on the one hand, and the other that it was a virus that was being studied for good reasons in a laboratory and leaked out by accident. Now, a lot of the arguments that were presented in two very influential articles, one in The Lancet and one in Nature Medicine, were actually uh, good arguments against the former theory, the, the, the bioweapon theory, but not particularly good arguments against the idea that a, a natural virus, with or without some kind of evolution in the in the laboratory could leak out so i think the media thought that all lab based theories had been debunked a year ago and the media a lot of the media was very keen to do that because they associated this idea with donald trump who was unpopular at the time still is and so the two got confused and i think one needs to make a distinction i mean it's possible that it's a, a bioweapon designed by an evil empire but that doesn't look to me at all plausible whereas the other theory does look potentially very plausible dennis you were skeptical of the lab leak theory this time last year can you explain why you were against it then and has your position changed at all since well, my position really hasn't changed. First off, let me say I agree uh, very much with what Matt has offered up. First off, the article that I signed on the letter, the Lancet, it really was about distancing from the idea of a bioweapon, a genetically modified, laboratory genetically modified virus, and because there was reasonable evidence uh, to support that. Here we are 16, 18 months into this pandemic, and we still don't, however, have any real solid evidence about its origin. So that remains an open question. And uh, quite frankly, China did nothing to help itself when it did not provide free and unfettered access, um, both to the examination of the Wuhan laboratory possibilities, but also uh, they did not really provide free and open access to be able to pursue the natural origins um, either. So the end result is here we are um, in uh, May of 2021. And the discussions about the origins really is more of a Rorschach test. Um, it reflects the personalities and the opinions that come. The reality is both are possibilities. Um, I'm a believer that if we think about the most probable um, route of emergence is the natural, uh, only because we see spillover events all the time. So that's not, uh, you know, it's, it's the most likely, but that does not eliminate the laboratory. And laboratories, you know, as Matt just mentioned before, they're vulnerable to accidental release. And I think that, in fact, the bigger discussion here isn't so much whether it came from a lab or not. I mean, it's a big issue, but the bigger issue is we don't have really uh, strict regulatory controls over the laboratories that handle these high consequent pathogens around the world. And if anything, the very fact that there's uncertainty about the origins of this virus should only up the discussion about how can the global community really put together the kind of conventions and standards 
that hold laboratories accountable to safe um, management of these high consequence pathogens. So if it didn't emerge, ultimately, if we show that it didn't emerge from Wuhan, that doesn't eliminate the risk that it will emerge from Wuhan at some future point. So I think um, we need to use this as a moment to really raise a larger question, less the blame game and more the recognition that laboratories are vulnerable. We don't have good international standards for regulating, and we'd be very smart given the proliferation of, of laboratories access to high consequence pathogens um, to put in place the kind of rigorous uh, control and standards of uh, performance within these labs. Dennis, you say you, you don't to play the, the blame game, but also that China didn't help itself when it came to the investigations into all this. I, I want to know what you make of the WHO uh, inquiry into the uh, uh, the origins of the virus, and perhaps want to ask: Do you do you think there was an overwillingness among some scientists to accept the Chinese parameters for the inquiry? Yeah. Well, let's first off be uh, clear that when an investigation goes in and concludes with more questions than answers, it's not a very good investigation. There's obviously some issues here, and the WHO investigation just opened up a hornet's nest of additional questions without any satisfactory answers. So, and I think Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO, recognized that as well and has very publicly said the laboratory and the natural emergence both remain open questions that need to be vigorously uh, evaluated and questioned. But it's also, you know, the, the issue about China's uh, lack of transparency we can't uncouple that um, behavior on the part of the Chinese government from the way the former U.S. President Donald Trump effectively weaponized uh, COVID-19 and turned it into a political uh, weapon. And it, uh, without any evidence whatsoever, um, accused China of all sorts of misdeeds because it was more a political argument than a scientific argument. So. On one level, I can appreciate the difficulties the Chinese find themselves in, but I don't excuse at all uh, the lack of openness and transparency. It's needed. We will continue to find ourselves offering up opinions on every possible uh, mode of emergence. And those opinions will again be based on uh, no, more no more real information than what we had almost a year ago. And let me just make one final point. Understanding the natural origins, the origins of this virus is critical because understanding how a virus like this moved itself into the human population is key to understanding how we can prevent a future uh, event like this happening again. So it's not an academic or a political question. It's fundamentally a public health question that needs to be answered. I very much agree with Dennis's last point, that the purpose of this, of trying to understand this, is so that we prevent another pandemic. And the fact that 18 months into this pandemic, we still don't know which of two main possibilities is, is right, means that we have to act as if both might be right. And we have to crack down on the wildlife trade and uh, encroachment on bat habitats in southern China, but we also have to crack down on laboratory practices. 
And one of the things that concerns me is the degree to which, over the last 10 years in particular, uh, there has been a huge effort to go out there and sample viruses in bats in the wild through the emerging pandemics threat program that Dennis used to uh, run and still runs the Global Virum, Virum Project. And that work was predicated on the assumption that if we did that, we might reduce the, we might avert the next pandemic. Now, I think there is an open question about whether or not uh, that might have contributed, given that it's a possibility that it was in the lab as a result of these virus-collecting expeditions that the pandemic began. And therefore, I think a question mark has got to be put over this this whole project of going out there and sampling viruses with a view to uh, averting the next threat. Curiously, a few years ago, some of the scientists who are currently very active in defending the natural uh, origin hypothesis were very critical of the prevent program as it was sorry the predict program as it was called uh, because they were saying that uh, it wasn't uh, as likely to help us prevent a pandemic as monitoring human populations in other words going out there and swabbing the noses and anuses of bats in remote caves might not be the safest or most sensible thing for us to be doing. Yeah, let me first off say this is a point that I disagree with uh, Matt on. I think we do need to do appropriate and rigorous surveillance of the human population. Um, But I would also say we need to expand that uh, into the animal population. That said, um, I also agree that going in and potentially harvesting high consequence viruses from any population is a double-edged sword. That there is knowledge that you can accrue, but there's also the responsibility of properly managing these um, viruses to avoid the kind of events that uh, Matt was just suggesting as a possibility. That's why I go back and say that we really need to up our global partnerships around of building safe, reliable, open and transparent laboratories um, that allow us to make sure that as we manage and handle these viruses, uh, we are doing due diligence to minimize any potential accidental release. So there's a responsibility that comes with uh, probing mother nature. Let's just be clear about that. On the point of transparency, Dennis, so you've obviously worked with Chinese scientists for years and you've said before that you're sceptical that they would ever cover up a, a, a leak. And do you, do you still think so? I have, I have the highest confidence in the scientific community that operates in the Wuhan um, laboratories. But there's always going to be a cloud of suspicion unless we have sound evidence one way or the other. So I would say let the evidence speak um, and draw your conclusions from the evidence and not from opinions. And right now we're only left with opinions and not evidence. So it becomes a, a very unsatisfactory and ultimately a um, disruptive trajectory we find ourselves in. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Dennis. With most countries on the government's red or amber lists, finding a holiday destination this year is tricky. Non-Scots might take this chance to go north of the border, but when The Spectator's deputy political editor Katie Balls went to the Outer Hebrides, she was warned by concerned friends that Scots might not be so welcoming of English tourists. She joins me on the podcast now, together with hotelier Gordon Campbell-Gray, 
who runs a series of hotels in Scotland and beyond. Katie, you've recently come back from a holiday in the Outer Hebrides. Can you tell us why your friends weren't uniformly excited for your holiday? Yes, and I was slightly confused by this because we got away as soon as we were legally allowed to do so. So I was telling my friends we were heading up to um, the Hebrides thinking they'd be very jealous of what we were doing. And a few instead came back and said, oh, are you sure about that? Don't tell anyone you're from England. And slowly realised that they were generally quite worried that we would get quite an unwelcome reception, uh, perhaps safety issues. And I initially brushed this off thinking... They don't know what the COVID rules are, the fact they've changed and, you know, they're being a little bit weird. But then it does seem to actually be tapping into a perception that quite a few people in England have about travelling to Scotland these days. And how did you find that perception when you got to holiday? Was it accurate? Not at all. I mean, I think I was probably an annoying traveller because my fiancé and I managed to lose our car keys before getting on the ferry while in the ferry queue. And I'd like to point out, he lost them. Um, (laughs) And there was such a high level of commotion that everyone came to our aid and helped us come with all these quite complicated backup plans, locals coming out, the Calmac ferrymen, um, you know, really um, trying to help out a couple that that might be about to break up. And then actually when we did, well, I found the key, at the very last moment shouting stop the ferry and to be honest I just felt that everyone there really went above and beyond to make us welcome and also keep our relationship on track. Gordon it's been a tough year for hospitality have you been concerned at all that English tourists are being put off? Well I think what has made me very upset because as a proud Scot I've been dying for everyone to come back and knowing the story you've just said, Katie, is is such a natural and normal story to read bits about English not welcome or tourists in general not welcome is really upsetting. And not only are we, am I concerned about it, but I've virtually, I think, travelled almost the entire planet from Machu Picchu to Russia to wherever. And Everywhere you go, you get a welcome. And everywhere has the same, every country in the world or many countries in the world have the same problem with the potential for over-tourism. You take whether it's Barcelona or Venice, they're all concerned that they have too many tourists. But at the same time, they need them. It's always about a balance. And I think what has bothered me so much is that the stories you're talking about, which I've read about as well, they're really basically not true. It's such a minority. And so we living here are so upset about it because jobs are at risk. The welcome of, I mean, I'm very proud of this country. I look at the mountains, I think they're wonderful. I don't own them. They're to share with everybody. The world is to share. I have such a strong feeling about that. So it's very, it's very upsetting when a minority can get quite a loud voice. But having said that, I mean, we are... We are now, I'm very happy to say, virtually full till the end of the summer and into the autumn and almost into the winter. And I was just double checking before I came on the call. And and about half the guests are English, virtually none are from abroad, and the others are from Scotland. And I asked them, has anybody rung you up and said, will we get a welcome? We've had no comments about that at all. So I think it is... It's overblown, but it's distressing. And again, you know, if you had a hotel in Barcelona and you were reading that the locals don't want any visitors, you'd be equally annoyed. 
And I think what bothers me so much, it's not just that we hire 150 people, it's, you know, the fishermen, all the people relating to the trip, whether it's the taxi or the florist or the tourist guide or the fisherman or the farmer or the veg, they all rely on this. Otherwise, this is the key, there'll be nobody on the islands, there'll be nobody in the sky other than retirees. So in order to keep youth staying, we have to tourism. And it's such a wonderful thing. So I think I think it's got overblown. I'm not conscious of any English person having a, having had a bad visit. And I think what you just explained, I think that would be a very, that, that was not unusual. And I'm not saying that because I'm Scottish. It's just a fact. You know, the guests just think, oh, we feel so welcome. The place is lovely. The staff are adorable. And that's what we do. We're selling a beautiful country with hopefully a great welcome. So it's a killer when you hear that there's that tiny minority who get quite a quite a loud voice, actually. Katie, you spoke to a number of people who work in Scottish tourism for your article. What were some of the suggestions that they made for encouraging a tourism revival? Well, I think it's when you look at some of the reports and it's completely right that some places are very popular but uh, you're hearing so uh, I think it was the Inverness Courier that first ran a story recently about a full, uh, lower than expected bookings so you're also hearing that from various tourism boards and they put this down to a number of reasons and I don't think um, anti-English sentiment is the main reason I think that one of the things when you hear about why they think there has been a fall in bookings is the fact that because of all the changes in travel rules, there are lots of people in England who don't actually realise they can now go to Scotland. There has also been an issue with the roadmap in the sense that Scotland's roadmap came out after England's. So I've spoken to B&B owners who said that they felt as though their English counterparts got lots of bookings on the day, but because things were a little bit less clear on the Scotland side in terms of uh, no specific dates, it meant they felt they were on the back foot. And then I think you add to that uh, some of the details I have in the piece about just, and again, it is a noisy minority, but a few things in terms of perceptions on the border, you know, there was the, you know, the protesters in hazmat suits last summer saying you need to stay out, which I think if people are umming and erring can can point you the other way. So I think what people would like to have, and at least uh, the people I've spoken to in the hospitality industry, is a campaign aimed, you know, in England saying that Scotland is open and you're very welcome and to make that very well publicised, just to really land that message because if you had that it would probably counteract you know the smaller voices gordon do you uh, like that idea of a campaign so the interesting thing is that at the moment virtually every hotel is full for the summer i mean scotland is just fully booked um i have friends ringing all the t- can you get me a room in this hotel that hotel and i really can't so it, it it, it It is working that people are coming here. I think that carry-on at the border was just very quick, but people kept saying, you can cross... As you say, there's been a disconnect in, in messaging and people got confused. And I was in Edinburgh the other day and um, we, we, we started thinking, and I should know because I, I kind of follow it vigorously, but three of us arrived for lunch and I mean, we can be three, can't we? And I mean, we were confused because it's different everywhere and changes all the time. So I think there has been that confusion. And of course, until recently, it was very awkward because you had to leave the restaurant at eight o'clock and you couldn't have a glass of wine indoors. But that's all changed. There's a sort of um, there's a sort of synchronizing now between England and Scotland, and. Um, I always put in everything I put out. There's a huge welcome on the mat. And I 
I believe that that is frankly 97% true. It's just a few fuddy-duddies who, or, you know, some political people who just want to make a point. Finally, uh, Katie Gordon, for the non-Scots listening to this podcast, any recommendations for where they should go in Scotland this summer? I think, as you've heard, one one of the issues is the places that are really popular always um, do get booked very quickly. So I'm going to Sky in August. I think it is quite hard to get accommodation in some of the, you know, the most popular traditional places. But speaking, I think if you look at uh, parts of the Highlands, bookings are lower than expected, particularly Edinburgh and Glasgow, hotel bookings are lower than expected. Those are figures from, you know, the Scottish Tourism Alliance. So, and some of the things that people would normally expect to go to that would bring you to places like Edinburgh, there's some uncertainty about. But as someone who grew up just outside Edinburgh and also briefly in Aberdeenshire, I think there's such a beautiful country that really Really, wherever you go, there's going to be lots of things to do. And also, even if you're in the cities, there's great architecture and also, you know, Arthur's seat, things to do. So I think uh, going away from the most obvious tourist hotspots is a thing to do. Absolutely. And the, the thing which is very interesting, even with Scots, what has been discovered is so many Scottish people don't know their own country. So we have so many Scottish tourists arriving. And one of the things I find the loveliest is to see arriving at, say, the Pier House, uh, mother and father and their two kids they may be arriving bikes they may arrive in canoes they may arrive in a bentley they may arrive in an old rusty land rover it's humanity they may be walkers and to see them having what i call old-fashioned holidays that i used to have as a child in fife and and i just thought it's so nice to see this step back a little bit for families and doing doing it and what you just said is right i mean sky in august you're picking i mean we you know we have the hotel there and it's obviously packed but basically you can go off piste and you'll hit beautiful scenery anywhere and I've, I've been having a weekly call with about 10 of us through the entire pandemic. And it was a bit like a therapy session for many people because it's been so tough. And some people have really, it's been very hard. Others have been better. But Edinburgh and Glasgow, I mean, Edinburgh's the capital, obviously. And it's really suffering. The hotels really need support. And I'm going uh, the week after next to have a week in Edinburgh as a tourist because Honestly, I've lived abroad and been traveling and my own capital's been a bit neglected. Mm. I'm going to spend a week there, five days actually, and just wandering around and, and enjoying all the aspects of that from the galleries to restaurants. So I think people should try to maybe include Edinburgh or Glasgow on their itinerary. And Dundee, of course, is interesting. But I think, yeah, I think not to just go to the obvious places because everywhere else is super Katie and Gordon, thank you very much. At last, are manners underrated? Harry Mount, the editor of the Oldie magazine, writes in this week's issue that, in an increasingly rude world, politeness is still the way to get what you want. He joins the podcast now, together with journalist Rebecca Reed, author of Rude, Stop Being Nice and Start Being Bold. Harry, can you please start by telling us about the teacup test you're thinking of introducing and why? Sure. Uh, I was very struck last week when a 20-year-old student came into my office looking for work experience. I'd never met him before, and he was incredibly polite. And I don't mean in an oily, sycophantic way. He was just gentle and clever and a bit shy. And he, he was in this office here, and I'd given him a cup of tea. And I said, don't bother clearing it up. 
and he did anyway, not with any oiliness, as I said. And it made me think I should do a teacup test for all future interviewees because it just showed manners. And as I say in this piece, I don't just mean etiquette. It's a sort of manners that goes deeply rooted inside your soul, meaning that you're thinking of other people the whole time and means you're very likely to be a good employee. Well, Harry, you obviously value manners very much and think there's real virtue to manners. But Rebecca, do you think that there can, in fact, be a virtue to rudeness? I very much believe that there could be a virtue to rudeness. But I would say I don't think that manners and rudeness necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. The thing I like to bang on about is that sometimes the fear of being rudeness can either stop you from doing things you want to do or can make you, particularly women, end up doing things you really don't want to do. Mm. And so freeing yourself from rudeness, especially or from the fear of rudeness at least, especially when it's sort of stopping you from doing things that feel right or natural, can be really important, I think. So... If it's the fear of rudeness, is it a sort of perception problem, would you say? I mean, in your book, you look at the ways in which people have got what they want through being perceived as rude and sort of overcoming the fear of that perception. And uh, could you give us a few examples, perhaps? So, yes, I wrote a book called The Power of Rude, which is basically about embracing the concept of being rude and losing that fear. And it's aimed at women because, generally speaking, they were the people I found who were being hampered by a fear of rudeness, men seemingly less so. And I interviewed a lot of women and the list of things people had done because they didn't want to be rude, uh, vegans eating pork chops, people organising Hindus when they're not even a bridesmaid for this wedding and not even invited to the wedding. And then also, you know, on the slightly more depressing and dark end of the spectrum, sleeping with people because you felt like they'd bought you a drink, therefore you owed them something and it would be rude not to. And I think we can all agree that all of those things are relatively ridiculous. So that's why I try to persuade people that rudeness can sometimes be a necessity and sometimes a bit of a superpower so that people avoid finding themselves in those situations. Well, Harry, do you agree with that? I mean, do you think that women who are assertive are perhaps more at risk of being perceived as rude than men? I think that's probably true. And I think it's probably historically true that men are much more likely to be aggressive and to do things like ask for pay rises or refuse to wash up the cup of tea I was talking about. So I suppose the thing is you can, you can ask politely for these things. I agree with Rebecca that actually by being too polite and not speaking up, you can end up having a, a much worse time at work and in life. But um, what I was talking about was this modern phenomenon, which I, I think, Rebecca, might be a different form of rudeness, is that People have been encouraged to think that being rude in and of itself gets you on. Uh, Be the best you can be, the appalling catchphrase, uh, because you're worth it, invented 50 years ago for L'Oreal, has encouraged people to think that by being rude, they will get on. And that does help people like Donald Trump or Alan Sugar, but they're already very, very famous. I think people are, are wrongly thinking in the great narcissistic age that being rude if you don't have power or influence will help you. And actually, what I was saying in this piece is that when people are employing people, like I might potentially with this man, what you're thinking about the whole time is is what they'll be like to work with. And being polite is a wonderful thing to be, particularly if you're working in an office with someone. I think we have quite a difficult situation in the sense that sort of people my age and a bit younger have been taught to sort of centre themselves in it, in all things. So they are the centre of the world and everything should fit around them. And if it's not happening, then that's unfair. And I think that can often end up with people being rude in, in the wrong sense, not in the sense that I revere, rude in the sense that sort of is a bit... 
makes you unpleasant to work with and be around. Um, but I think when we talk about things like teacup test, which I've heard people say similarly, you know, if you go for an interview, offer to put your glass of water back in the kitchen or whatever afterwards. The flip side of that as a woman is that I've been in meetings when I used to have a proper job where I would be looked to to sort of put water glasses out for everybody and pour the water for everybody because I was the only woman in the room or I was the only girl in the room. And I think there's a very difficult tightrope that you walk as a woman where you don't want to be rude and you don't want to seem like you're arrogant or above doing your own washing up because nobody is. But you also don't want to cast yourself as the mother or the maid, which is something that does tend to happen quite often. So it's difficult to get that one right. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that happens the whole time. Mm. It seems to me that you're, you're both slightly agreeing that there are these different forms of rudeness then, that there's a difference then between being rude and just being generally unpleasant to other people and the need to stand up for yourself. I mean, is that how you would see it, Rebecca, do you think? It's a good point talking about sort of Donald Trump and Alan Sugar and all those sort of catastrophically rude people who've made a real... And Simon Cowell and all of those people who've made a sort of business of it. And I definitely found that when I was first getting into journalism, the way to make a name for myself and the way to make some money was to be desperately rude on television. So to go on you know, a breakfast show and then shout at somebody and, and basically be the worst dinner party guest ever for about three and a half minutes on, on breakfast television. You see it also in um, people trying to make their name in journalism. The more horrible you can be to a politician, the more you can eviscerate someone, the more likely you are to be sort of remembered and noticed. So I do think that we are sort of stumbling into a little bit of a culture of being rude and unpleasant is the fastest way to make a name for yourself but you know it's 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 a doggy dog world out there we've all got to pay our rent and harry do you think it's okay to fight fire with fire i mean in other words would, would there be a benefit for being more assertive and actually potentially rude to someone who is rude to you in order to point it out to them well it depends i mean if you're very passive aggressive like i am i describe <laughs> a friend of mine who once behaved badly in a quite small way and he didn't say sorry and i said say sorry and he said saying sorry is a sign of weakness which i thought was the world's worst expression but rather than getting angry with him because i'm not good at getting angry i just resolved not to see him ever again quietly and silently to myself so i think it's quite good not to fight fire with fire because the problem is rude people don't realize that there are an awful lot of non-confrontational people like me around so that they go on being like this and you know these rude people you meet at dinner parties I talk about and very few people say perhaps they should say you're being very boring or showing off too much they don't say it so these people go on doing it so the rude should know that secretly people are making mental notes I never want to see you again <laughs> oh I'm not sure I quite like my rude friends and I do have some really terrible rude friends who you'll turn up and they'll say you look awful my god what have you been eating all of those types of things and I it always puts me in mind of Princess Margaret I remember apparently Cherie Blair offered to show Princess Margaret some pictures of her baby and Princess Margaret said god no why would I want that and I, and I, I think that's a truly admirable tendency because you know where you are with rude people and they are at least being very clean and very clear about what they want I'd much prefer that to people who seem nice and then are horrible about you behind your back so you're not a fan yes. of, of Harry's passive aggressive approach that it sounds like Rebecca but I don't think that is passive aggressive I think one of the greatest skills in life is to decide when somebody has sort of ceased to serve you as a human being and to withdraw from their friendship I'm an enormous exponent of that tendency and finally Harry you and your piece you you name some writers you have very good manners uh, you name Quentin Letts and Ian Wilson for example and you say that rude writers are the semi-literate ones with absurdly high opinions of themselves now, it'd obviously be very rude for me to ask you to name names, but perhaps you could give some tantalising hints for our podcast listeners. 
Well, well, the problem is, well, they'll sue both me and you. But <laughs> what they tend to be is the not very good ones who are very, very touchy and they're very angry and they tend to be narcissistic, which means they've been spending most of their time showing off rather than reading books or listening to people, which is how you get to know more stuff. So it's not infallible, but uh, you might find the same with the spectator, but very often the ones who aren't really very good at writing replace their talent with anger and aggression. Uh, and we have no one like that at The Spectator, Harry. I don't know what you're talking about. I know, no, sorry. No, no, I'm only talking about contributors from outside. No one, no one on the, on the actual premises. But um, I, it's a pretty good rule of thumb. And with those people, I list Barry Humphreys and Craig Brown and Ian Wilson, all brilliant writers. And one of the things they have, as well as being perfect, the articles they deliver, they're also, because they're brilliant, they're very busy. So they're doing other things. So they don't say, can I look at a proof? Why have you corrected my spelling of the word dog, etc.? They've got something else to do. Whereas the rude narcissists have become so unpopular, no one wants to deal with them. So their article is the one thing they've written all year, and they get incredibly cross about their misspellings being corrected. But you may not have the same experience, both of you, but it seems to be a pretty good rule of thumb. No, I think it's unforgivable to object to being edited. And I think you're in the wrong business if you can't take that nicely. Harry and Rebecca, thanks so much. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all the pieces discussed? You can also get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 if you go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.